You're listening to the Today in the Word radio podcast. This week, we bring you four messages Chuck Colson presented at MBI Founders Week between 1981 and 2003. Then we'll close the week with his message at the Washington, D.C. Leadership Conference 1988. Chuck Colson was a Christian leader who founded Prison Fellowship and Breakpoint after serving as special counsel to President Richard Nixon from 1969 to 1973. Now, here is Chuck Colson on Today in the Word Radio. What a great occasion this is for us to gather here. We come together at our conferences and they're sort of galaxies of all the Christian superstars. You've had Becky Pippert and Dick Halverson, Leighton Ford, Luis Palau coming, all the names in the Christian world. It sort of reminds me when I come to one of these gatherings of a true story of an event that took place some 30 or 40 years ago now when three great preachers toured the country together. One was Harold Akengay. Maybe some of you remember him or remember that name at least. Another was J. Marcellus Kick. And yet another was Donald Barnhouse. Three of the most illustrious preachers in America. And they took off on a 30-day preaching tour across the country. And every night, two of them would give sermons back-to-back at different gatherings, just like we're gathered here. And every night, the same thing would happen. Akengay, who was a very gifted man would often go first and be followed by Barnhouse. And Barnhouse, for 30 days, everywhere they went, gave exactly the same sermon. Akengay gave different sermons, so did Kick. Well, when they finally got to Richmond, Virginia, to a Presbyterian church, which was the last stop on the way, Akengay looked at the schedule. He saw that he was preceding Barnhouse, and he decided that night that he would have some fun with his colleague. encyclopedic mind that he had, (laughs) Akengay strode to the pulpit, you're guessing it already, and gave Barnhouse's sermon word for word. (laughs) He looked over several times and Barnhouse sat stoic, unmoved, unflinching. Barnhouse, the pro that he was, the great preacher that he was, got up and gave a totally new sermon, brilliantly. And it was a magnificent evening. And as they were walking out, Barnhouse said nothing to Akengay, and Akengay simply couldn't restrain himself any longer. (laughs) He finally leaned over to Barnhouse as they walked out through the narthex, and he said, Donald, they seem to like your sermon here tonight. (laughs) Barnhouse looked at him and said, not as much as they liked it when I gave it here three months ago. We trust that won't be the case this week. (laughs) Your conference is about evangelism. And you come here to talk about how and to learn. And I really enjoyed a session I had with some of you this afternoon, a dialogue session that was really stimulating and helpful to me. But you come here to learn how better to proclaim the good news to the world. But I would submit to you that it is impossible today to talk about how we can proclaim the good news to the world until we take a look at the kind of world in which we live so that we really understand what obstacles there are to evangelization, at least in Western culture today, and I'll be talking somewhat about Western culture tonight, but the challenge that I would leave with you is a challenge that applies to the church universal worldwide. 
you come to Washington at a troubled and somewhat sad time in this city. Only days ago were revelations of rampant corruption in the Pentagon. That came very close on the heels of charges of conflict of interest, serious charges against the Speaker of the House of Representatives, one of the most powerful men in the United States government. That came only on the heels of six months of an attorney general embattled in the Justice Department, attempting to hang on to his position as many of his trusted lieutenants quit in protest and investigations proliferated. Came on the heels of White House aides who left their office, their trusted position next to the President of the United States, to sell memoirs, to make a million dollars at book advance, to disclose secrets of what they'd learned even before the President was out of office. Came on the heels of a rash of indictments of people in public office. And that followed on the heels of two candidates for president, the first time in American history, two candidates for president having to withdraw because of character flaws, one because of plagiarizing other people's speeches, one because he couldn't restrain his glandular urges long enough to run for president of the United States. But it isn't confined just to government and politics. It's rampant through every area of American life. Just this week, we saw the second major securities insider trace insider case being brought by the Securities and Exchange Commission. Once being a fiduciary in American life was a trusted, respected position because you were trusted to be a trustee of someone else's money. And today, that's an excuse simply to go out and take insider information and trade it for millions of dollars of personal profit. We've had a string of spy scandals unprecedented in American history culminated last year by Marine sentries in Moscow at the embassy, one of the most valued and vaunted positions in the Marine Corps, betraying secrets for sexual favors. A betrayal that cut me deeply because I can remember when I was commissioned in the Marines and the globe and anchor was pinned upon my lapels and I remembered the proud tradition of 200 years of that military arm of the United States and what it meant, Semper Fidelis, the creed of the Marine Corps, always faithful, trading that honor for sexual secrets. And the sense of betrayal has even invaded, of course, and most tragically of all, the Church of Jesus Christ. Ministers of the gospel betraying that for sexual favors and personal profit. Well, are these just a few rotten apples in the national barrel? Are these just isolated instances, or is there a pattern that we see taking place in our society today? Listen to what Time magazine said. Time said, what's wrong? Hypocrisy, betrayal, and greed unsettle a nation's soul. The Washington Post spoke of a society increasingly confronted by incidents in which the actions of adults or children seem bereft of morality and conscience. Some experts say, the depth of the problem has reached a point where common decency can no longer be described as common. New Republic magazine accuses society of a failure to teach civilization, which is to say to socialize and to civilize, and a destructive sense that nothing is true and everything is permitted. 
Now, when the Washington Post, Time magazine, and the New Republic, which have never been known as apologists for conservative morality in America, begin to decry the loss of a traditional moral base in America, some line has indeed been crossed. I spent 12 years of my life in government. I spent the last 12 years of my life in ministry. If I were to stand back today and look at the society in which we live, and if I were to be asked, what is the greatest crisis we face? It is not the threat of nuclear holocaust. It is not the possible collapse of the stock market or the collapse of the dollar, or it is not runaway inflation, or it is not even the drought now in the Midwest, as serious as that is, or a threat of an ecological disaster. The greatest crisis facing American life today is a crisis of values, a crisis of character. What kind of people do we really choose to be? It's a crisis of the human heart. The problem is widespread. It's so widespread that it has become a little bit today like the looting mentality. You know, when looting takes place, like the, during the blackout in New York in 1967, uh, 1977, when all the looters went rushing through the stores, it began with a few people breaking into stores and stealing things, and then it went swept through neighborhoods where people were employed and unemployed alike. It swept through middle class as well as ghetto neighborhoods. And when people were questioned why it happened, they said, well, I saw other people getting things, and so I wanted to get mine, and they stole things they didn't even need. A firewall is breaking down in American life today, where the prevailing attitude is, get whatever you can get while there's time to get it. That's the cultural value system we live by. Why is this? What's happened to us? Where are the men and women of character in our culture today? Well, we know that the problem is the nature of man. Those of us who are Christians, we know very well what Chesterton beautifully wrote. He said, the doctrine of original sin is the only philosophy empirically validated by 3,500 years of human history. I mean, we know the nature of the human heart. But there's something more to that, because from generation to generation, the internal restraints, the habits of the heart, the, which Tocqueville, the phrase Tocqueville used, the dispositions which prevent us from unleashing those base passions which are natural to us vary from time to time. William Butler wrote that civilization is an exercise in self-restraint. At various times, societies have learned self-restraint and discipline. But we're losing that today, and we're losing it today largely because we have become subject to what Alan Bloom in his magnificent book, The Closing of the American Mind, describes as the era of relativism, the idea that there is no absolute truth. Begin to think for a moment how you would proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ in a society which believes, as ours does today, that there is no absolute truth. You become a bigot simply by proposing it, because tolerance becomes the highest virtue in today's society. Truth is whatever you find it to be. Truth is whatever you find it to be. Truth is whatever I find it to be. Alan Bloom writes in his book, he said, there's one thing of which a professor in a university in America can be absolutely certain, and that is every incoming freshman believes that truth is relative. Now, if you study about this, you realize this goes back to being born in the Enlightenment era when no longer was the God hypothesis necessary because the Big Bang brought the universe into being, and no longer did we need transcendent value systems to, to engage in moral discourse because that could all be done by reason alone. 
and it was given full flower in America during the 60s, during the wave of existential writers which swept across American campuses, Camus and Sartre, who argued that God is dead, life has no meaning except to transcend the nothingness, and therefore we find meaning through our own experience overcoming the nothingness and deadness of life. But relativism, which has taken such deep roots in American society today, inevitably leads to something else. If all morality is equally true and all morality is equally false, then the only basis on which we can make moral judgments is self-interest. What is best for you? What is best for me? That's the only value system that can count. Internal restraints are removed. Character is sapped. I'm always reminded of Samuel Johnson's wonderful story, wonderful reaction when he was informed that a certain dinner guest believed that all morality was a sham. Johnson replied, he said, why, sir, if he really believes there is no distinction between virtue and vice, then be sure that we count the spoons when he leaves. Just recently, a sociologist by the name of Robert Bella has done a fascinating study of American life. He took 200 middle-class Americans and he really examined their values to try to find out what really does make America, what makes Americans tick today. He asked them what institutions were important to them and what they expected to get out of those institutions. For the family, he discovered that people were seeking personal development. No wonder marriages are in trouble. For work, people were interested in personal advancement. And for the church, personal fulfillment. The two great overriding goals of American life, Bella discovered, were vivid personal feelings and success. Those are the gods of American life. That's the culture into which we have to somehow take the claim that Jesus Christ was bodily raised from the dead, that he lives today, and that one day he will stand in judgment of all men and nations. Absolute truth into a society that believes only in what Bella calls radical individualism, taking care of yourself. C.S. Lewis in 1947, and most of you know that his writings have been so influential in my life. C.S. Lewis in 1947 wrote an extraordinarily prophetic essay on the subject of relativism, which was just then beginning in campuses in England. He likened the proper order, properly ordered soul to the body. He said the head or reason must rule the stomach or appetite, but it must rule it through the chest, what Plato called the spirited element. The spirited element, Lewis said, is made up of emotions organized by train habit into stable sentiments. But what relativism does is to take away the spirited element, the very seat of character. It destroys character. And listen to what Lewis wrote. <clears throat> he might well have been talking about insider traders or politicians in Washington or marine sentries in Moscow. In a sort of ghastly simplicity, we remove the organ and demand the function. We make men without chests and expect of them virtue and enterprise. We laugh at honor and are shocked to find traitors in our midst. We castrate 
and bid the geldings be fruitful. The results of this weakening of character is an erosion of a sense of public responsibility. Where does our sense of common good come from if the only value system is get yours and get it now and get it quickly? When the individual restraints on man's individual passions are gone, when there is no longer a sense of self-sacrifice in society, the result becomes ethical anarchy. And the problem is we simply can't count the spoons fast enough. Well, the question that this puts before us as Christians, where do we turn? How does moral education take place in society? What institutions can we turn to? Education? No. How many of you saw the students protesting at Stanford University because they found that all of the authors of great books were white, sexist males, and so they protested, they protested that, it was a, that to be forced to read those books was to impose a value system that they no longer could accept on Stanford's campus, and so they chanted across the campus, hey, hey, ho, ho, Western culture's got to go, and the Stanford faculty caved in. As one writer observed, if only Plato had been a lesbian Comanche. <laughs> Do we turn to the media? The media, as an institution, brings only fleeting emotions. That's why there's no real political discourse going on in this year's campaign, because all you've got is 30-second news bites, news burgers that come on, and it's images, all images. Now, the media isn't going to encourage moral discourse or the restoration of character. Government? I know many Christians in the 80s believed that government could somehow bring moral character back into government if only we could elect the right people and if only we could get the right agenda adopted by the Congress. Look back over the last eight years. The moral condition of America has continued to decay no matter how much our vaunted political efforts have made because the fact of the matter is that while government depends on people of character, it can't create character. Character is created in the seat in the, of, of character, which is the spirited element, which is the heart. And government can't do that. Neither Calvin nor Stalin could dictate how people live their lives or dictate character. There are only a, two institutions that can do it. And my friends, my brothers and sisters, as we gather here tonight, the two institutions that hold hope for the restoration of character to American life, which is the most desperate need of our times, is number one, the family, and number two, the church of Jesus Christ. It comes down to our doorstep, you and me. Family, of course, is number one, because all the studies are showing that moral formation basically takes place between the years of one and six. Nothing breaks my heart more than to walk through prisons as I do, for example, at Rikers Island in New York, 20,000 inmates, most of them under 20 years old. No exposure to the church, no father, no family, nothing. Kids swept up off the streets. And it's happening not just in the cities, but in the suburban areas and all across America because the family is breaking down before our very eyes, being destroyed. 
The number of families in America today that would be classified in traditional family standards, that is, a mother taking care of the children, a two-parent family, the father working, kids at home, the, that number of families today in America is 20%. You see, God created the family as the first institution, not only to propagate the human race, but as a school of first instruction. It's the place where children are taken. The ever-proper Miss Manners says that children are born they're born charming, frank, and spontaneous, and must be civilized before we're fit to participate in society. Any parent here agree, would instantly agree with that. That's the place where moral instruction takes place. And that's the place where relativism has done its greatest disservice to our culture. I would submit to you that there is no job more important no responsibility that you have greater to the flocks that you pastor or in your own lives than that we as Christians model to the rest of the world the family the way God intended it to be. That's our number one responsibility. The second institution for reclaiming character in society is the church. Hard job. How does the church do this? It's going to take a lot of sober soul searching on the part of each one of us to know how it is that the church of Jesus Christ today can free itself from being captive to this culture and truly be a model community of justice and righteousness that people can see and thereby be an instrument of the restoration of character in society. It starts, friends, it seems to me, with a few basics. The first, if there's ever to be renewal of the church, if there's ever to be evidence of faithfulness, if the church is ever to be, as Newhouse puts it, a zone of truth in a sea of mendacity. It has to start with the church being the church that God called us to be, that is to be a repentant people. We have no business going around strutting up before society saying, we found it and we've got it all. Fifty times in the New Testament the word repentance is used and generally grossly misused today in the church. Yes, it means confession of sin, of course. But it means something much more. The Greek term in the New Testament for repentance is metanoia, a change of mind, a total change of perspective, that we begin to see ourselves for who we really are, a needy, sinful people desperate for the grace of God, and we begin to see God for who he really is, majestic, holy, all-powerful creator God. Repentance changes the whole outlook of a church. I think it is no coincidence that when Martin Luther nailed the 95 theses on the door of the church at Wittenberg, the very first of the 95 theses read, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he willed that the entire life of the believer be one of repentance. Second, there's no place that we as Christians can take our stand except upon the holy, inerrant word of God.
Make no mistake. You know, when I first, when I first became a Christian as a lawyer, <laughs> sounds like an oxymoron, doesn't it? A contradiction in terms. As a lawyer, the first thing I did was to pick up this book and start to read it. I mean, I really wanted to know, could this be what it says it is, the Word of God? Or was it just old legends and fables handed down through the years? And so I started to read. I read it three times all the way through. Actually, well, actually, I'll confess. I read it three times all the way through looking for the only verse of Scripture before I was a Christian that I knew by heart. You know that one, God helps those who helps themselves? <laughs> <laughs> Made the most amazing discoveries. I discovered that this book says exactly the reverse, that God helps those who can't help themselves. But I also made another amazing discovery, and that is that this book has incredible consistency to it. All these books written over different year, uh, hundreds of years by different authors with an incredible consistency. And then I began to study all the archaeological discoveries, and I don't have time tonight to take you through it, but I, I spent about two years trying to see, could this book really be what it says it is? And I came to the conclusion, as many historians are doing, that this book is exactly what it says it is. It is the Word of God, under whose, which authority we must live. It is God speaking to us today, and God cannot speak with error. It is God's Word without error. Interesting that a, a very respected historian by the name of Paul Johnson, maybe some of you have read his first book, History of Christianity. He's just written another book, History of the Jews, and he wrote a magnificent book on 20th century history entitled Modern Times. But Paul Johnson, who's an Englishman who's had a profound conversion, has begun to study all of the discoveries of ancient manuscripts and all of the archaeological discoveries and all of the texts that have been found. He gave a remarkable speech in Dallas last year in which he said and went through all of the evidence how much more evidence there is for Jesus Christ having said exactly what he said than there is, for example, for Aristotle having said what he said. And yet no one questions Aristotle, but people continue to question Jesus. And he concluded his speech by saying, it is not now the men of faith, but rather the skeptics who have reason to fear the course of further discovery. Don't worry. Don't put your head down and and say, well, I believe in the Bible, and you're worried about those secular modern critics out there who are going to make you look foolish, don't worry, because the evidence is mounting on the historical accuracy of the Bible as well as the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And you can hold your head up and take that position anywhere among our secular friends. And in that same vein, I have to say that what is so vitally important is that we preserve our orthodox heritage a traditional confession of faith and truth which the Christian church has stood on from the beginning. Don't fall into the trendy fads of the moment. Donald Blesch writes in his book, Crumbling Foundations, secularism advances only as orthodoxy retreats. It's up to us to hold fast to that truth and be that zone of truth in a sea of mendacity. And third, the Church of Jesus Christ must be a holy community. I like to call it a community of light in a sea of darkness. I've traveled all around the world and I've been exposed to every religion. And what really sets the Jew and the Christian apart from all other religious beliefs is that we believe that there is a personal God 
who came and chose to live physically in our midst. Remember what God promised to the Jews when he said, I shall pitch my tent in your midst. Literally. Think of ourselves as a church, as an encampment of people in which God has come and pitched his tent literally in our midst. That's why he calls us to be holy. Not because there are lots of do's and don'ts, not because there's some philosophy laid forth in here, but because the sovereign God, the holy God who created the universe, has come and chosen to encamp himself in his chosen people, the Jews. And then in the New Testament, when the word became flesh and dwell among us, those words in the gospel according to John, they mean precisely the same thing. The translation in the Greek is to pitch a tent. God lives in our midst. If we're really the church, the people of God. What does that mean? That means that our enormous trusteeship responsibility is to be the people who are like God. You shall be holy, God said, because I am holy. That means that we are to share God's compassion, God's sense of justice, God's sense of righteousness, and to reach out to a hurt, hurting and needy world as God's people. Not to build our big churches so that people can come in and see how great we are, but to reach out to them as God has reached out to us. I think of this sometimes when in our ministry we take gifts at Christmas time into the children in, <clears throat> of inmates who are in prison, 57,000 last year. We invade the inner cities when Christian volunteers go in with these presents into the homes of those inmates, taking the church to them. And I just saw a study that came in this week of many of the areas of the country where we've been delivering Christmas gifts to inmate children with little gospel comic books in it and discovered that, for example, in Houston, 50% of the families visited are now in church. And in Chicago, 70% of one group of families visited are now in church. And in California, in Los Angeles, 50% of the families now coming into church. Taking the gospel to hurting people where they are. One of my favorite story illustrations of that is a place in Jefferson City, Missouri called Agape House. A number of years ago in Jefferson City, when, which is the seat of the, not only the capital of Missouri, but also the, <clears throat> the state prison with 10,000 inmates, most of the families have to come hundreds of miles from Kansas City and St. Louis to come to Jefferson City. The wives used to come and drive to visit their husbands in prison, and there was no place for the wives to stay. And so a group of Christian volunteers got together and bought an old house, called it a Gapi house, fixed it up, bought it for $46,000, borrowed the money, got volunteers from 12 different churches, all different denominations. They came and fixed the house, opened it up. There were 30 beds in that home, and they opened it up, and any wife of anyone who was in prison at Jefferson City, Missouri, could stay there for $3 a night, for which they would get a meal, a clean bed, a Bible, a place to stay, and best of all, a daycare center where their children could be taken care of while they went, mommy went over to visit daddy in prison. Thousands of women have stayed there. The place has been full every night. Interestingly enough, it is run by a former Southern Baptist missionary, a woman, and by a Catholic nun. I tell a story in one of my books of one night when Sherry, a barmaid, was staying in Agape House. She had been there to see her husband who was doing life for murder. She was sitting at the dining room table on a Sunday evening and she said, had a Bible that was given to her by the two women who met her at the door when she came in and checked into the house. And she was tapping the Bible and talking to the other women at, around the table and she said, you know, I've never been to church, 
I don't know if there's a God. But I think I'm going to read this book because if there's a God, I think he's got to be something like the two women who run this house. See, that's taking that holy community, that community of light, to people who are needy and desperate in the world. And it's the one way we're going to roll back the tides of self-interest that otherwise are going to consume us in America. It can be done if we really are a holy community of people committed to obediently following Christ in taking the good news to people where they're hurting and suffering, not waiting for them to come into our churches. It can be done. I know you're sitting there tonight and you're saying to yourselves, well, Colson has painted a pretty dour picture of things. Western civilization in disarray, character being destroyed in American life, the church itself beset by scandals and a lot of cheap grace being preached. And he's trying to tell us that somehow little holy communities of light can make a difference. Yes, I am. That's exactly what I'm telling you. I've traveled around the world. And maybe with a darkness, maybe where it's darkest, the light shines the brightest. I've seen communities of light. I have seen these little beacons in the darkness. God's hope. Much like 14 centuries ago when the barbarians overran Europe. When Western civilization was destroyed. Nothing was left but a few monastic outposts. Monasteries where the monks faithfully recorded scripture, preserved learning, did good works, drained the swamps, but kept those little communities of light alive. And eventually, when the barbarian hordes were torn back and when, when, Christen, when Western civilization was restored, what was left were those beacons of light that brought back that light to Western civilization. And the same thing can happen today. I've seen it. I've been in the prison in Kithwe, Zambia, one of the dreariest, most horrible prisons I've visited anywhere in the world. Walking through that prison one day after talking to 600 inmates in an open field, I was walking with an ex-inmate, Rajan Matani, and he said, I'd like you to take you to my cell block, Chuck. I said, I'd love to see it. We'd seen several of the blocks where the men sleep at night in 10 by 12 cages, 15 of them, and they have to take turns sleeping on the floor. Water is brought in at night in a pail, and that same pail is used to take the excrement out in the morning. They have a little courtyard outside of their cells. As we walk down this whole row of cells in this great old British colonial-style prison, <clears throat> Rajan said to me, do you hear that singing? I could hear some beautiful, beautiful African music in the distance. He said, those are the brothers in my cell block. He said, they know we're coming. The word had already gotten down. We got down and swung the gates. They swung the gates open, and I looked in, and here were 60 or 70 men standing against the wall, smiling singing this beautiful, joyous music in this absolute hellhole. I can't even describe how bad it was. I walked into the center and stood before, in front of the open sewer as I started to speak to the men. I realized it was the wrong place to be standing. Why were they smiling? On a whitewashed wall behind them in charcoal, they had drawn the most beautiful picture of Jesus, the suffering Christ, hanging on the cross. Community of light in the midst of the darkness. I've been in Lurangancho, Peru. I was there the week after a nun had been taken hostage and murdered. A prison of 7,000 inmates where reputedly the most violent, 
deadliest, most dangerous prison in the world. The inmates run it. The guards wouldn't walk inside with us. We had to walk through the pavilions by ourselves. I walked into one pavilion and my feet, I wear leather soles, my feet started to slide on the floor and I looked down and I saw I was sliding on open sewerage that was coming out of the cells. And I looked down this row of cells and the men hung on the bars with those dead, vacant eyes and those ugly hatred, hatred written across their face. And I walked the cell blocks and as I would walk them, maybe every fifth or sixth cell, an inmate would grab me and he would pull me into his cell, the doors were open, and the cell inside was immaculate, and he would point up at the wall, and there was a prison fellowship certificate. He had graduated from an in-prison seminar of prison fellowship, and he would point at it, and I couldn't speak Spanish, and he couldn't speak English. He'd go, me, me, with a big smile, and I'd take that brother and embrace him. And a few, hours, a few minutes later, we met with about 50 of the inmates who had been through our prison fellowship seminars inside that prison. The most joyous fellowship I've ever seen. The body of Christ at work supporting one another inside that prison. A community of light in the midst of the deepest darkness. Lorton, not very many miles from here, a riot in the prison just two years ago when they burned down the buildings and the guards were being assailed by the inmates and the Christian inmates stood in the center of the prison yard and they held hands and gripped hands and for four hours sang hymns guarding guards who went into the center of that circle, their lives being saved by those inmates. That's the community of light in the center of darkness. And it's amazing how God works. Maybe one concluding illustration makes my point better than any other. A prison was built in Cuba a number of years ago, the Isla de Pinos prison. Someone said, why are we building this huge prison? And the dictator at the time said, someone will come along and fill it up. That someone did come along and fill it up. His name was Fidel Castro. Into that prison 27 years ago now was thrust a young man by the name of Armando Valadares. Valadares was an anti-communist. Valadares was a Christian. Valadares clung to his faith even as he was beaten, his hip was broken, he was welded into his cell, the guards walked overhead and urinated upon him and defecated upon him as he was locked in his cell. He was made to march through bramble bushes and march in into sewerage up to his neck, gasping for breath for hours on end. He would never renounce his faith. As a matter of fact, he told of the prisoners who would be marched out of their cells at night and they would be taken down to be shot. And they knew, the other inmates knew they were going to be shot. And as they would go down, they would shout just as the rifle bolts could, you could hear the cocking of the rifle bolts, you could hear the prisoners shout out, Viva Cristo Rey, long live Christ the King, and then the shells would be fired. He tells an amazing story, Valadaris. He said that one night there was a fight going on. The guards came to break up the fight, and suddenly, as though to protest them, there emerged from the cell a skeletal figure with white hair and flaming bizarre eyes. He's the brother of faith, one Protestant inmate in a largely Catholic prison. He threw his arms out and he said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. He raised his head to the invisible sky. The brother of faith had hardly had time, this is from Valadares' memoirs, had hardly had time to finish his sentence because as soon as he appeared, the lieutenant ordered the guards to step back. He fired an AK submachine gun. The burst of fire ripped up, climbed the brother of faith's chest up to his neck, virtually severing his head. 
as though from the blow of an axe. He died instantly. Rekindled, refortified in a way he could not forget. Valadaris survived torture. That tiny community of light in that prison endured for 22 years until Valadaris, the poet, was miraculously released from that prison by pressure that came from Amnesty International. He then wrote his memoirs against all hope, one of the most stirring Christian testimonies of the day, and it was those memoirs that exposed the horrors of Castro's gulag out of the prison, out of that community of light came the one expose of a government. Yes, isn't that the way God works? A man hung on a cross, and as a result, millions and millions are free. Out of the seeming brokenness of life often comes God's greatest power, real power. Is there hope today? Can anything turn back the tides of self-interest and relativism and individualism that threaten to engulf us as a flood? Yes. The communities of light, the church of Jesus Christ, if we are a repentant people who take our stand upon the holy word of God, if we indeed cling to orthodox confession of faith and truth, and if we are indeed a holy community, yes, God will do as he wills out of our faithful obedience. And my brothers and sisters, it is the one hope for our civilization. It is the one hope for our times. May we have the courage to be that kind of people. God bless you. You've been listening to the Today in the Word radio podcast and one of four messages Chuck Colson presented at MBI Founders Week between 1981 and 2003. Chuck Colson was a Christian leader who founded Prison Fellowship and Breakpoint after serving as special counsel to President Richard Nixon from 1969 to 1973. Audio copies of this and many other messages from the podcast are available at moodyaudio.com. Today in the Word Radio is a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of the Moody Bible Institute.